Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. Spreading the news and information. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Talk radio at its best. You're listening to Rainbow Soul from BlakeRadio.com. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and welcome to Healing with Dr. Daniels. It is Tuesday, April 11th, 2017. My, how time flies. Well, and today's topic is the unhappiest city in the United States. Amazing. And what's this got to do with health? Well, does it have to kill them? I mean, a lot of people are unhappy. So guess what? I happen to be familiar with this city, the Yassarebab. I spent five years of my life driving up and down the highway through this city. And so what I'm going to share with you tonight is the medical industrial complex's side of the story about this unhappy city. And I'll give you the inside scoop, what I saw when I lived in this area of the country. So, as always, think happens. All right, so here we go. This is absolutely shocking. So, which city is it? It's Wilkes-Barre, uh, Pennsylvania. Yep, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. So, first, I'm going to tell you my side of the story. So, I went to medical school in 1979 to 1983 at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine in Philadelphia. So what's the relevance of that? The relevance of that is in order to get to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, from Syracuse, New York, you have to go through Wilkes-Barre. That's it. You've got to go through Wilkes-Barre. And so uh, starting in 1979, I was driving down this highway to Wilkes-Barre. And I, sometimes I would drive. Sometimes my parents would drive. Sometimes I'd get to drive a, a ride with another uh, student, but always we'd go through Wilkes-Barre. And when I went back for my reunions, I had to drive through Wilkes-Barre. So if you've ever driven through Wilkes-Barre, it is shockingly depressing, even as far back as 1979. And as you're on the highway driving through Wilkes-Barre, you just shake your head. You cannot even imagine there is a place in the United States that is this sad and depressing. The factories are all shut down. The houses are falling apart. The roads in poor repair. And of course, if you ever got off the highway to use the toilet, everyone you see has a sad face. Well, this has been the case since 1979. An incredible, incredible landscape, environment of total misery and unhappiness. That is Wilkes-Barre. But it was always Wilkes-Barre. Somehow, in 2001, something changed. A switch was flicked. 
And all of a sudden, people in Wilkes-Barre started dropping dead in record numbers. But I want to know, I want you to know, I've been driving up that highway, up and down that highway, from 1979 till 83, continuously up and down that highway, going back and forth from Syracuse to Philadelphia, and every five years thereafter for my reunions. And Wilkes-Barre has always been an extremely unhappy place. So what made Wilkes-Barre go from being an extremely unhappy place to an extremely deadly place? So for this, <laughs> we are going to look and see what the medical industrial complex says. We're going to look at what they say, and we're going to take it as, well, take it at face value. Why not? That's why I say take it at face value. Medical industrial complex says it. By golly, it must be true. Yeah, there you go. That's it. So Wilkes-Barre faces heroin scourge, turning it into the most unhappy place in America. In other words, the medical industrial complex was somehow under the impression that Wilkes-Barre was a happy place until heroin showed up. Interesting concept. So this is Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And our, our information source, by the way, is NBC News. Um, and I take them as being as accurate as a medical industrial complex. I'm sure they have the same uh, database that they're drawing from. So, so we're interviewing the county coroner here. So the longtime Luzerne County coroner, the first sign of the coming plague appeared in the hills of northeastern Pennsylvania in November 2015. So he didn't notice anything wrong until November 2015. Okay, you'll... We'll come back to this. A 27-year-old woman from one of the mountain towns surrounding Wilkes-Barre was found dead in her family home. Lisman suspected a drug overdose. She was young. She'd been healthy. There were no obvious signs of trauma. And heroin abuse had been on the rise in recent years. Okay, so heroin use was on the rise in recent years, and this was 2015 that uh, he got wind of this. So when a person died of an overdose, the lungs filled with fluid, he said. The victims essentially drown in their own fluids. So because autopsies are expensive and time-consuming, and because it is Wilkes-Barre and economically depressed is an understatement, uh, they didn't do uh, autopsies. So many coroners faced with cases like these do toxicological tests, that means blood tests, designed to pick up traces of known drugs to determine the cause of death. But the first test Lisman administered came back negative. So did the second. So Lisbon listed the cause of death as undetermined. And by the way, this is a lot, this is exactly how things go. When someone dies, there really is no scientific way to determine the cause of death. You have to, to look at the circumstances, deduce well, what seems to be most likely, and then do tests and exams to investigate those likely prospects. So it starts out being a guess, and since it starts out being a guess, it can't end up being any more than that because you only investigate your list of guesses. So several days later, a 34-year-old man was found dead in a sleeping bag in the nearby city of Hazleton. Once again, Lisman suspected a fatal drug overdose. Once again, the toxicology test came back negative. Now again, these are blood tests that test for levels of drugs in the blood, suspected drugs. Now, obviously, I'll give you the punchline, these people all died of overdoses, but the toxicology test came back negative. And so a lot of people ask, oh, Dr. Daniels, can my doctor tell if I'm taking my drug? No, he absolutely cannot tell if you're taking your drug. In fact, some drugs are so devastating that if you're getting better, the doctor knows you're not taking the drug. Um, but no, doctors do not have a way to determine if indeed you are taking the drugs they prescribe, or really any other drugs for that matter. So at that point, the doctor I've been consulting with about these two cases told me, Bill, there's something going on here. Like many coroners in smaller counties, Lisman is not a doctor, but he knows about death. A third-generation Wilkes-Barre resident, he and his family ran a funeral home that buried several generations of city residents. He reached out to fellow coroners in neighboring counties to see if they had similar cases. Well, they had. And the answer was fentanyl, a powerful painkiller. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration says is 50 times more powerful than heroin, and packs 100 times more punch than morphine, and can be manufactured easily by illegal drug mills. This was the same drug that killed Prince last April. 
Okay, so we're going to pause here. They're painting fentanyl as a powerful painkiller, blah, blah, blah. I'll tell you honestly, it is a drug commonly used for general anesthesia. So if you've had general anesthesia recently, like in the past 30 years, you probably got some fentanyl, just to let you know what's going on. But you would never guess it to read this article. Okay, I started hearing about fentanyl and how drug dealers were cutting heroin with it, he said. Lisman said he had the toxicological test tweaked to detect the presence of fentanyl, and after that, the drug overdoses here skyrocketed. Facing a crisis, Lisman called a local newspaper, of course, the Times leader last May, and sounded the alarm. I knew I wasn't going to stop people from using heroin, but I wanted people to know what they were using. He said, this stuff can kill them, and it has. The deadly mass in Wilkes-Barre. So last year, there were 137 deadly drug overdoses, more than half of them the result of heroin laced with fentanyl in a county of just 318,000 people. That's the whole county, 318,000. That death rate is four times higher than New York City. 20 years ago, we might have 12 deaths we determined to be drug deaths, Lisbon said. This year, we are on track for 150 deaths. By our standards, this is off the charts. Now, let me just give you the date of this article, which is January 9th, 2017. So this is January 9th, 2017. This is a raging epidemic in Wilkes-Barre, and, of course, nobody can stop it. Hmm. There have been so many fatal drug overdoses at Lisman, who uses an examination room in the basement of a local hospital to do autopsies, said he has had to finagle space to put all the bodies. I only have room for two in my cooler, he said. There's room for just 10 more in the hospital's other cooler. Now, that should be a tip-off of how many folks the hospital's killing, right? The hospital's got enough space for 10 bodies in the cooler, and the coroner, who handles deaths from all causes, only has space for two bodies in the cooler. So uh, just pick up on that little tidbit. The victims reflect the demographics of the county. They're mostly white, lower to middle income, Lisbon said. And let me tell you, you drive them down that highway by Wilkes-Barre, and you know anyone who had two nickels rubbed together would probably leave that town. Really depressing place. Age-wise, we're across the spectrum from 20s to 70s, he said. We see everyone from the guy in the flop house to the hardworking guys or gals who find relief in drugs. Also, while heroin users in the past relied on needles, the vast majority now is being snorted. Ah, so a user doesn't have to go through the process of injecting now. It makes it easier to use. Well, also, this is my editorial, easier to die. So a packet of heroin that sells for $5 in the Bronx, that's uh, part of New York City, can fetch double that in Wilkes-Barre. That would be $10. And if it's cut with fentanyl, the profit quadruples along with the danger to the users. Now, this is, this is really just uh, outrageous that um, because you can get $10 in Wilkes-Barre and it's $5 in the Bronx, that all the drug dealing is moved to Wilkes-Barre. Okay. Heroin definitely has hold on this area, says Kathy Reiser, a certified recovery specialist. I've never seen anything like it. Every time you look in the newspaper and you see somebody died young and at home, you know, you know. And so Christopher Emmett buried, 23, buried his 23-year-old son, Christopher Jr., in August, although in his case it was due to a lethal mixture of morphine and codeine. Well, well, well wait a minute. <laughs> These are legal drugs, morphine and codeine, but narcotics nonetheless. So every time I hear of somebody dying, it's always with the fentanyl mixed with it. It's never somebody that just did heroin and died from doing heroin, he said. Now, he says every time, but again, we just gave an example of poor little Christopher, 23 years old, who died from a mixture of prescription drugs, morphine, and codeine. Okay. From Boomtown to boarded-up storefronts, I want to know when Wilkes-Barre was a Boomtown, so let them tell us. So the plague hit Wilkes-Barre as the proud county seat on the Susquehanna River was struggling to reverse decades of decay. Yes, believe me, it's been decades. Once a thriving city of 80,000, Wilkes-Barre was built by coal and manufacturing barons who erected stately homes and public edifices like the stunning county courthouse and the 14-story National Bank building in Public Square. 
Thousands of Italian, Polish, Lithuanian, and Irish immigrants poured into the city to work in the mines and toil in the garment factories. But the city lost half its population when the anthracite coal mines died in the 50s, and the good manufacturing jobs vanished. And in 1972, Hurricane Agnes delivered a body blow to the local economy when it flooded downtown with nine feet of water. And of course, I showed up in 1979, and it was it was total, total, I tell you, devastation. After that, Wilkes-Barre became a city of abandoned buildings and boarded-up storefronts, as the remaining residents struggled to find their footing in an economy where the main employers were now government agencies, the local colleges, and hospitals. And so in other words, there was really no private industry to uh, speak of. The recession in 2008 hit Wilkes-Barre. How could it? <laughs> there weren't any jobs. They were already gone. How can a recession hit a government agency? Oh, well, they did have the government shutdown for two months. And when Barack Obama was running for president, hopeful residents voted for him in droves and did so again when he ran for re-election. But while the rest of the country rebounded, this Rust Belt city and the rest of the county, including Vice President Joe Biden's hometown of Scranton, across the border in Lackawanna County, were slow to recover. Now, again, you got to take this ride on 81 South. It's, it's worth it. It's a, a, think of it as a tourist attraction. But you drive up down this highway, and you see the Wilkes-Barre Scranton exit. You can get off if you want to, but you don't have to. You can see the devastation from the highway. Many jobs returned, but not many were the good-paying kind that could support a middle-class life. And those who opted to stay in Wilkes-Barre became disappointed and resentful. They want the jobs they had before, not the jobs that are available now, said Kathy Bosinski, the marketing and communications chief at the United Way of Wyoming, Wyoming Valley. A lot of good things happened during the Obama administration, but a lot of the things the folks here were hoping for just didn't happen. Okay, so they're... Well, you know, that, that sounds like a pretty optimistic, hopeful person, not an angry, resentful, uh, depressed person ready to use heroin. But I digress. And so what's happening, I mean, just, just, just to paraphrase this process, is they're building this whole fantasy fiction of this heroin and blaming this heroin use and overdose on the depression of Wilkes-Barre, which no doubt about it, I'm telling you guys, you got to see it to believe it. Uh, it is depressing. And I haven't seen all of the United States, but this is the most depressing, saddest place I have seen. And I grew up in the ghetto. I didn't know that there were non-black Americans living like this. But it's so depressing, even from the highway, that you don't even want to get off the highway. But the point is, this has been going on by their own admission since at least uh, you know, 1972 if not 1950s. So why start using drugs uh, after the year 2000? So I hate to use a cliche, but there are a lot of angry white guys in the region who 20 years ago were making decent money, Bozinski said. Now they're struggling to pay the mortgage and have a good life. There's a lot of frustration. Now, again, 20 years ago, this is, uh, let's get this straight, this is 2017. So 20 years ago would be 1997, and Wilkes-Barre was dealt a devastating economic blow, wiped out by a hurricane, and never recovered in 1976. So 20 years ago, there were no jobs in Wilkes-Barre. Again, all you have to do is drive down the highway, and you can see all the abandoned buildings and the deteriorating buildings. So um, there's a lot of contradictory things here in this, this uh, story. But obviously, this piece of yellow journalism is attempting to explain this heroin epidemic by the attitudes and despondency of the residents of Wilkes-Barre. And I say, if you weren't despondent in 1979, by golly, there was certainly no reason to turn to drugs any time after. All right, so what else can we, they say? <sighs> okay, so Mary Wallace, who's the Lisbon's office administrator, said for many people, leaving Wilkes-Barre for a better life somewhere else is not an option. And why would it not be an option? It's hard for people who have been here for generations, whose families are buried here, to pick up and move, even if they might be better off somewhere else, she said. This is their home. 
so this is uh, this is totally bizarre, right? Because the American dream is you grow up, you go away to college, you explore new frontiers, you travel the country. This is this is just it. This is the only American dream. This is not some uh, you know third world country where you just you you're born in this spot, you live in this spot, you die in this spot. This is this. I mean, why do you think we have cars, right? It's for mobility. But at any rate, the person writing this article is telling us that people in Wilkes-Barre, for some reason, just can't leave, even though they hate it here and they're unhappy here. All right, so the most unhappy place in the United States. So two years ago, a pair of researchers, one from Harvard, the other from the University of British Columbia in Canada, concluded that the Scranton-Wilkes-Barre metro area was the most unhappy place in the United States. They reached their conclusion after wading through the results of telephone polls conducted by the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention between 05 and 09, including answers to the question, how satisfied are you with your life? Now, I would like to suggest to you that the average Wilkes-Barre resident, that answer would not be substantially different between 1979 and the present. Let's see what our researchers, our brilliant PhD researchers said. Okay. Lisbon, whose four grown children did not return to the Wilkes-Barre area after finishing college, agreed that they live in a depressed community. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lisbon's children, all four, can grow up and leave, and no one else's kids can leave? What's up with this? Is there some kind of class program here in uh, Wilkes-Barre where certain whites are kept down and not allowed to leave the city? But I will say, I have had occasion to talk to people from Wilkes-Barre, the ones who are still there, and they tell me, everyone, if they could leave, they would leave. So I've never talked to anyone from Wilkes-Barre who's told me that they would stay there. Just totally unscientific, right? Just one person, yeah. And I did get off the highway occasionally to uh, try and get gas, uh, which is hard to do because even were many gas stations there. Okay. We have a lot of people who are unhappy with life, he said. People using drugs are looking to escape. Now, again, Lisman's own four children escaped by just leaving town. This is simple. Buy a bus ticket, you know, it's easy to do. Uh, but somehow, Lisbon believes it's okay everyone else has decided to stay and just use heroin. All right. For Lisbon, the heroin plague is a symptom of the way people here feel and have dealt, have felt for years. He said, I don't have an answer for opiate addiction, he said, his smile fading fast. The pain and suffering that it has caused is unbelievable. It's eating away at the core of society. Again, what core? So Reisner said the people she sees are dealing with a host of demons beyond the economic. Everything from sexual abuse and broken homes to being raised in households where drinking and drug taking runs rampant. She sees people who get hooked on prescription drugs make the move to heroin. Oh, oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait. Getting hooked on prescription drugs. There we go. <laughs> We're back to the prescription pad. If we just took the prescription pad out of these doctors' hands, the kids, the, not kids, the human beings wouldn't get hooked in the first place. Okay. But I can't just blame the doctor, she said. It's a little bit of economics, a little bit of hardship, a little bit of being raised like that. So drugs like heroin, she said, makes all your problems melt away, makes any kind of hurt, any kind of feeling. After three days of doing opiates, you're addicted, she said. You don't even know you're getting caught up. And Riser would know. She was a drug addict for three decades. That's 30 years. And it's been clean for 10 years. So she says death by drug overdose, just not natural. That's true. It's, it's not an act of nature. Human beings have to, you know, get involved in this. It was against this backdrop that heroin plague hit the region. So Corner Lisman, whose dad was once the mayor of Wilkes-Barre, said that at first he made a point of personally going to the scenes where a suspected fatal overdose was reported. No more. Now it's become so routine, said Lisman. He's gone back to dispatching his deputies to do the grim work of taking the bodies to the morgue. But Lisman said he's very much aware that this play, what this plague is doing to his hometown, it admits it has left him shaken. I was raised in an apartment above a funeral home. Death never scared me, he said. What bothers me is the resignation he has seen in the victims' families, ones who react almost with relief. It bothers me that somebody's life could reach a point that death could be a positive thing, he said. This from a man who has comforted thousands of people over the years whose loved ones died of natural causes, sometimes after enduring years of pain. Death by drug overdose is different, he says. That's just not natural. So one case in particular, 
still haunts him. The police got a 911 call and arrived to find a young couple in their 30s dead in bed from a hot load of heroin while their five-year-old son was watching TV and eating Cheerios. Lisbon said he knew enough to call the police for help. <laughs> death behind closed doors. So the heroin plague in Wilkes-Barre is largely hidden with death taking uh, drug abusers behind closed doors. You don't see junkies in the street, said Bozinski, who was previously an Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter. This happens behind closed doors in bedrooms and basements. But the effects ripple across the city and touch everyone. Everywhere you go, you hear, did you see that story about that one in the paper? Was that another drug overdose? Said Wallace. That's what everyone here is talking about. So the toll is not just psychic. Crime is up, police report, especially petty thefts, break-ins by drug abusers looking for money to score a fix, and the dealers are almost always out-of-towners. Hmm. They're not racist, said Bozinski of Wilkes-Barre's residence. Yes, some white guys blame people from outside for bringing drugs here, but that's also the acknowledgement that there is a market for it here. What's happening now in Wilkes-Barre is not new. Heroin use has been on the rise across the country since, get this, 2002. Okay, so we're going to remember that year, 2002. According to the Federal Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. We're behind the times, said 42-year-old Paul Smith, who was born and raised in the city, and who buried his former partner three weeks earlier after he died of a heroin overdose. A lot of problems that were happening in other places are now happening here. Sitting in a local bar called Hun's Cafe 99 and nursing a beer and a basket of chicken wings, Smith and Jeremy didn't know what he was dealing with when he started snorting heroin. Smith said Jeremy didn't know. It's been a very hard thing, he said. I spent a lot of the time helping him to get clean. It was a hard reality, and it was hard to find services to help him. Smith said people in Wilkes-Barre turn to drugs because they're already depressed about their lives, depressed that they don't have work, two or three jobs to get by. That's why people voted for Trump, said Smith, who runs a limo service, owns real estate, and admits to voting for the Manhattan mogul as well. Now, this guy runs a limo service, and he owns real estate, so he's got at least two occupations. So people are so sick of other people doing better. Sitting beside Smith was 28-year-old John Sabatelli. He agreed that it was ignorance and danger of dangerous new variety of heroin that was fueling the crisis. He recalled being surprised when he discovered that a couple at the warehouse where he works was getting high on heroin in the bathroom. It's surprising in that you don't know who's going to do it, he said. So proud town sights on. So grieving dad, Christopher Emmett, said drugs have gotten a death grip on his community, and he said his doomed son started smoking pot at age 13 and quickly graduated to harder drugs. Christopher Jr. was in and out of rehab, and so are most of his friends. Again, I reiterate, rehab is not effective. It's really an epidemic, Emmett said. We went to 14 funerals of my son's friends who died of addiction just one year. They're dropping like flies every day. So Emmett's wife, Patricia, burst into tears at the thought of spending Christmas without her son. And as she cried, her boy's ashes sat in the urn on a shelf in the living room. And she said, there ain't no Christmas, she said bitterly. So now, wait a minute, wait a minute. So she's bitter about the death of her son. I'm not going to criticize that. The question, is she going to go out and use heroin because she's bitter? No. So the bitterness and sadness as a, a reason for the heroin use, it just doesn't, doesn't work. But we're going we're gonna to find out we're going to get to the bottom of this epidemic. Okay, so Proud Town fights on. Wilkes-Barre may be down, but not out. It's far from defeated. And Ava show uh, a picture here where the streetlights are actually working, so that's nice. So new restaurants like Franklin's have opened to serve the young professionals who've moved downtown to live in loft apartments in some of the vintage buildings. Hmm. Older establishments like the Cafe Toscana were bustling with diners on a Tuesday night and so is the brand-new Chick-fil-A, which is located on the first floor of a dorm that King's College built right on the square in an attempt to make students part of the city's revival. Just outside downtown loom the rotting hulks of long-abandoned factories. Yep, you can see them from the highway. But higher up in the hills, Christmas lights twinkle on many of the modest but clearly kept, clearly kept up homes, and the streets bustle with families going about the business of everyday life. Over at the ornate County Courthouse, which dates back to 1909, which was built at a time when the future of Wilkes-Barre seemed bright. A chorus of fourth graders from a school across the river in Larksville 
filed into the central hall to perform a medley of Christmas carols. So in other words, life goes on as people in Wilkes-Barre continue to be miserable and shoot up. Watching them was a the grandmother of 11-year-old chubby brown-haired boy with untied gym shoes. His face creased into an angelic smile when he spotted his grandmother. I'm scared for him, said Grandma, who declined to give her name. I have family that got hooked on drugs, and I don't want that to happen to him. Asked why the area has been so ravaged by drugs, she shook her head. She says, I just don't know. Maybe because they're so easy to get, she said. Children's music teacher Joseph James said so far his kids are completely sheltered from the heroin crisis unfolding around them. Says, I hope it stays that way. Now, this one lady said the one true thing in this whole report. She said, I don't know. Maybe it's because the drugs are so easy to get. And that's really what's changed. Wilkes-Barre has been absolutely, totally, completely unhappy, miserable place ever since I became aware of it in 1979. Why would drugs suddenly hit in 2002, according to the National Drug Report Commission here? And then the coroner, of course, notices it in 2014. Can't get anything by him. (laughs) So what happened? around 2002. So as one lady said, maybe something else happened. The drugs are so easy to get. So here we have a national event. What would that be? The war in Afghanistan started when? 2001. They say it ended in 2014, but that's possible. So the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan was the period in which the United States invaded Afghanistan after the September 11th attacks. The majority of Afghans supported the American invasion of their country. Supported initially by close allies, they were later joined by NATO beginning in 2003. So what happened then is the government started a war in Afghan. What the heck has that got to do <laughs> with heroin and Wilkes-Barre? Well, the war in 2001 was a way to get heroin from Afghan to the United States. And unfortunately for Wilkes-Barre, as this one astute person observed, the drugs were just so easy to get. I mean, give me a break. $10 to shoot up on heroin? That's amazingly inexpensive. I mean, in some cities, you can't even get a movie ticket for that price. So let's take a look at, so I asked myself, well, does heroin really make people unhappy? Is being a heroin addict uh, a miserable, unhappy thing? So, you know, we have the internet, right? So it happens to be a website. It's called bluelight.org. And what do they do? They talk about using heroin. So I figured I'd go to the heroin users. Ask them. Does using heroin make you unhappy? Because how would I know? I don't use it. Not only do I not use heroin, but since I didn't prescribe narcotics, I didn't have a single addict in my practice. So let's go to the addicts and see what they say. So Floating Zebra says, I am curious, and I want to know, are there any of you guys who've been shooting up or smoking or whatever for a long time and happy in your shoes? And so Verso gives an answer. He says, well, I'm not sure I understand your question. If you're asking whether or not it's possible to be a happy, habitual heroin user, if that's what you're asking, then I would have to say that it's possible but difficult. I can only speak for myself, but in my experience, heroin hasn't exactly made me any unhappier than I already am. I'm broke all the time. But I was broke all the time before I began sniffing dope. If I weren't broke all the time, and if I weren't a habitual heroin user, then I would just burn through my money and a bunch of worthless things that would make me happy for the moment but have no real lasting positive impact on my life. Things like shoes, clothes, a new watch maybe. So that's it. And it's exactly the same way in Milk Barrow. It is a miserable place. There is no question. However... To say that heroin makes it more miserable is a pretty big stretch. Um, as a kid, I was aware of adults who were uh, heroin users. 
And of course, this was the time of another war, right? So the government was engaged in um, the Korean War and the uh, and later the Vietnam War. And in those during those wars, there was a lot of drugs in the United States. So one had to almost scratch your head and say, "Geez, was the government importing drugs? Is that the real reason for those wars?" Well, we'll never know. But to blame unhappiness on heroin is almost an oxymoron when heroin is, well, causes euphoria, is my understanding. Okay. And so Josie chimes in and says, Lewis is right. You can only be a happy heroin user for so long before it does become problematic. I was a happy heroin user for some time. But as your tolerance increases and you need more and more, you can't get any one day and get sick or you don't have enough money for a few days for a bag, you find yourself doing terrible things to get your fix, and you'll wake up and realize you're not happy anymore. In rehab, they call the stage of using when you're a happy user your honeymoon phase. But if you're an addict like I am, it will end. No exceptions. So uh, one person says, eh, life as usual. Unhappy before I started using, unhappy while I'm using it. And the guy says, well, you know, it's really great for a while, and then things don't work out so well. So another uh, guy says, well, I always felt like a drug problem. It's only a problem if you cannot afford your drugs. And when I had bottles of pills in my pockets, I was just like anybody else. Grocery shopping, movies, coffee with friends, so on. Quite happy indeed. So um, if you read these uh, testimonials of these heroin users, um, it really sounds like life. Some are happy, some are not. And so this epidemic in Wilkes-Barre, if you read carefully between the lines, is started with a prescription pad. Doctors wrote prescriptions for narcotics, got people hooked, and then people went on to heroin. At $10 a pop, it's certainly cheaper than an office visit uh, to see a doctor to get, you know, to get a prescription. Um, so that's one avenue. Then you find, read the article further, that the drugs are being shipped in to New York City. And now they're not being shipped in one kilo at a time. They're being shipped in like by the tonnage. And then uh, you have an army of salespeople, uh, we'll call them dealers, the salespeople, showing up in Wilkes-Barre, undetected by the police, selling these drugs. This all seems very, you know, kind of fanciful. But you, and again, having lived in a neighborhood, a ghetto, where there was a fair amount of drug dealing, um, I did notice that I could seem to tell who was dealing the drugs, but the police couldn't. But as a public health matter, what you have really here is you have a government having wars, procuring drugs, shipping them in, turning a blind eye to the very visible and obvious movement of drugs from New York City to Wilkes-Barre. Let me tell you, that's not exactly um, a hop, skip, and a jump. You, you, can, you can detect this increased traffic. And uh, I can tell you for myself, as a person who drove through Wilkes-Barre, you almost want to speed up to get through the city. It just even looks that depressing. Um, it would be easy to see the increased number of cars taking the Wilkes-Barre exit, especially if you're going to believe this article that the Wilkes-Barre residents don't seem to be able to get a car or enough gas to get out of town. It's you know, so to find a car going in and out of Wilkes-Barre would not be a frequent event. And the drug dealing would be very easy to detect, especially since it's coming from outside. So, so you've got a government that's aiding and abetting this transfer and even licensing doctors to write prescriptions to get people hooked on narcotics. It's a sad state of affairs indeed. And it's difficult to attribute all this to the level of sadness in Wilkes-Barre. Because Wilkes-Barre has been sad for a very long time. It's just that now they have been visited by this blight of very easy, very available drugs. And the idea that you can buy heroin for, for 5 or $10 is just, is just jaw-dropping. I remember I was in medical school back in uh, 79 to 83, and uh, they taught us all about heroin addiction and how to reverse it with Narcan, and in a whole four years of medical school, not a single drug overdose came into the emergency room. And I had to ask, well, how much is 
heroin? How much is a fix? And back then, they would say it was uh, $25, between $10 and $25 a bag. It comes in a bag. I said, oh, my God, well, how would any poor person be able to afford that? Because at the time, I was a medical student living on uh, a $7 per week food allowance and eating every other day. I mean, if I wanted to have a heroin habit, it would take me a whole month to save up the money for even one dose. I said, well, that's out of the question. So uh, there was no war going on, 79 to 83, and uh, there was apparently not much availability of heroin. Now, there was the Iran-Contra thing going on uh, during that period, and that there was cocaine along that Central American corridor at the time. And lo and behold, there was cocaine on the streets, but there was no heroin. Really, really unfortunate. So what is a person to do? Well, what a person to, is to do is, first of all, as we said yes last week, do not accept any narcotic prescriptions from your doctor. If your doctor offers you a prescription for narcotics, you have to let your doctor know that you uh, do not intend to become a drug addict. It's not your plan. Not what you have laid out for yourself. So you're going to have to decline that prescription. Or you could just accept the prescription, um, you know, fill the script and flush the pills. But uh, don't accept narcotic prescriptions. They don't work for pain relief anyway, so why bother? That's the first thing. Second thing is, uh, you know, as the lady said, there's just, they're, they're so easy. There's, the heroin is just everywhere. It's just so easy to get. Uh, I would say if you're in a town where heroin is that easy to get, it's reasonable to leave town. At the coroner of Wilkes-Barre, all four of his kids just left town. And that's a reasonable thing to do. It really is a uh, you know an environmental thing. And you have to decide that if it's something that you're not going to do, you're just not going to be surrounded in an environment, you know, where that's going on. So let's take a look, see if we have any questions. It's 542. And by the way, you're looking at listening to Blake Radio, the Rainbow Soul Channel. Okay, let's see. We've got to move our screens around here. Check out the chat room. Let's see what's going on. Okay, here we go. Um. <laughs> Dr. Daniels, I think the current heroin industry is an organized scam that Bernie Madoff would be proud of. You know, I think Bernie Madoff would probably be very impressed. In fact, it really puts him to shame. <laughs> and another... Uh, Listener says, this show is brought to you in association with the Wilkes-Barre Tourist Association. Exactly. Honest to God, you've got to see this stretch of highway. You would not believe it. You would not believe that there is such a place in the United States. Okay. <laughs> Expendable. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> All right, let's see what else I have to say here in the uh, uh in the chat room. All right, that Dr. Daniels, my father has a one inch by two inch growth that oozes blood and smells bad. Okay, we don't know where this thing is on his body. It would be good to know. Uh, start out as what looked like a mole on his skin. Can turpentine kill this growth? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, his problem is his diet. So turpentine alone, in other words, just smearing turpentine on this is not going to solve it. The problem is internal. He's got a bunch of junk in his body, and his body has figured out that it can dump this junk through this mole. So he has an internal uh, problem. So to start by killing the mole is uh, definitely backwards. So you can apply turpentine topically, but you would need to take turpentine internally. And definitely go to vitalitycapsules.com, download your free report, and 
go for it. Of course, if you require personal guidance, uh, that is not free, but you can still check out a discovery session at vitalitycapsules.com. Dr. Daniels, are golden flax seeds as healthy as brown flax seeds? No, they are not. Is there any reason to avoid them? Uh, if you're trying to get healthy black, fla- uh, healthy flax seeds, then eat the brown ones. Uh, that's just my opinion based on nutritional analysis. Okay. What helps eyesight problems result to high blood sugar now lowered? Hmm. Not quite sure what the question is. Um, so maybe the question is, Dr. Downs, if my blood sugar is lowered and I have eyesight problems, what do I do? The answer is you keep your blood sh- sugar low, keep it normal, and then get a different pair of glasses. But your eyesight is not going to go back to uh, the level it was at at the higher blood sugar. <laughs> okay. All right, let's see what else we have here. I'd like to remind people to please visit vitalitycapsules.com, that is our sponsor, and get your free report, the uh, Candida Cleaner version 2.0. It has been updated. Um, it is now easier, it is more clear, and we've eliminated all the uh, non-essentials. Dr. Jones, what is the best way to handle spider bites when you don't realize you've been bit until it gets really bad? Okay, so as soon as you realize you've got bit, just um, apply turpentine to it, and that usually settles it down. Mm. Okay, Dr. Jones, three days ago, I fell and hit my head. I have no headache or nausea, but there is some soreness. How can I tell if I have a concussion? Uh, you might have a concussion, but you certainly don't require medical attention if you can type this and uh, pay attention to the show this far. <laughs> okay, so this person says, I lost contact with turpentine for many years and was reintroduced to turpentine by Dr. Jennifer Daniels in the Candida Cleaner. And my healing experiences continue. Okay, Uh, you're welcome. Thank you for posting that. Okay, let's see. Okay. All right. Dr. Dance, can we expect these drug epidemics to spread to other areas as well? Absolutely. Um, and what basically happened is uh, Wilkes-Barre was simply targeted by um, elements in the government that are, imp- that are responsible for importing these drugs. That's really all that happened. And the unfortunate people of Wilkes-Barre, you know, have just been visited with this plague. And you can see it as like a, just a swarm of locusts that come in and just psh, uh, denude all the trees and greenery. So that's really what has happened to Wilkes-Barre. It has really nothing to do with the people of Wilkes-Barre, whether they're good or bad or whatever. And as the uh, citizen at the end of the article astutely observed, it's just so easy to get. It's everywhere here. And you cannot... Uh, in the face of all that, allow your children to be educated by the very same government that's bringing in this stuff. And so um, the problem is that this generation, uh, these drugs coming in um, as a result of the Afghan war, is just something that the adults were totally unprepared for. So the parents were totally unprepared and just had not prepared their children for this uh, problem or this epidemic because they had uh, never seen it before. I mean, people in Wilkes-Barre were poor, abandoned, um, you know, destitute, without jobs for ever since 1976 at least. So why in 2001 would there be a drug problem? You know, it just, it just wouldn't. 
So Nazi needs to proceed as covering the entire country, at least an attempt to do that. Um, it's really strategic. You know, I think that Wilkes-Barre is just a, a, you know, kind of a rollout uh, trial, so to speak. And um, this is just to create another illegal drug trade. You know, now we see marijuana is being legalized. And so you now you have to create a robust industry and some other um, illegal drug to justify uh, government intervention, government regulation, incarceration, and various other, uh, you know, punitive measures. <laughs> Dr. Dance, I think it's important to be conscious of groups and organizations that try to help a community yet choose not to live there. Uh, that's true. I agree with that. And when I was practicing medicine um, from 1990 to 2000, I actually lived right there in the ghetto. And I saw which way the drugs were going and where they were coming from and just went ahead and shut it down. But if I had not lived there, in the neighborhood, I would not have realized what was going on, how it was happening. And I probably could easily have been misled into doing things like supporting rehab centers, which would have been totally ineffective and extremely costly and actually damaging to the, um, to the residents of the, of the community. It turned out in my neighborhood, the drug dealing was coordinated through convenience stores. And it turned out, thank God, that the convenience store owners were not in the habit of paying their taxes. And so the law said, if you be more than two years behind in your taxes, the government could seize your property. And also there were zoning laws that said, if a burning a bu- building burnt to the ground or was however destroyed, its permit to operate was revoked and they had to reapply. And since the convenience store owners... Um, thank God, did not get along with each other and they would burn each other down or they would have a space here that would um, malfunction and start a fire. All kinds of things would happen. Um, Every time something like that happened, I was right there ready with an organized backing of community uh, people and boom, we just shut it down where it couldn't reopen. And I only shut down, I think, four convenience stores and that place looked like uh, a suburban area. Beautiful streets, safe, no drug dealers, kids playing in the streets. It was amazing. But when you don't live in a place that you're trying to improve, it's um, almost impossible to have an impact. And it was also very economical. You know, I didn't have to spend that much money to do it, a few thousand bucks. <laughs> Okay. Oh, so that's like, okay, let's scroll up here and see if we can see more questions. It's eight more minutes. Okay, Dr. Dan, please explain structured fat and bacon. So it's not structured fat, it's structural fat. The structural fat is the fat in your body that is solid at room temperature and provides a cushion to your organs. This is very important fat. And this same structural fat also provides a structure to your, um, your limbs. So if you um, extend your arm, such if you're a woman, you'll see, hopefully, that you have nice, beautiful, smooth skin and that you are not able to see every last little muscle and fiber under your skin in its outline. Why? Because you have structural fat. You have fat that actually is part of the physical structure of your arm. And it gives your arm its shape. It gives your arm its softness. This is a 30% body fat that women are supposed to have. Um, You cannot maintain this structural fat by eating vegetable oils. Because vegetable oils are liquid at room temperature, let alone body temperature, which is 98.6%. And so you've got to have someplace in your diet a source of fat that is solid at room temperature because it is only that fat that is going to be able to be used to replace, repair, and maintain your own structural fat. So when babies are born, for example, um, or um, maybe around six months of life, you'll see the babies have nice full cheeks and that those full cheeks are from the structural fat. So they, they have a source of this kind of fat in their diet. So this fat is present in bacon. You can see it. 
because in bacon, you know, all you have is little streaks of meat, and the rest of that bacon is fat, and that is the structural fat. How would the bacon be cooked? You cook it the way you usually cook it. Um, yeah, you just put it in the pan and turn the heat on and uh, flip it over when it's um, brown on one side. Now, here in Panama, they cook their bacon by just literally heating it on one side, turning it over and heating it on the other side. And so my husband and I would go to restaurants where we literally have to send the bacon back. It's like, please cook it some more. <laughs> um, but the pork here in Panama is a much higher quality than the U.S. Um, the pigs are basically free range. They run around and uh, they don't they don't get any um, purchased or commercial feed. <laughs> so that could answer. I didn't know females were supposed to be 30% fat. Yes, they are. I keep hearing about people bragging about having 15% body fat. Yes, the reason they're bragging about it is because it's totally unnatural, and they work very hard to get 15% body fat, especially on a body that's supposed to be 30% body fat. <laughs> Okay. Dr. Dance, are they trying to, is there a movement to make a switch from drugs to virtual reality? It seems to me that could be far more addictive. Absolutely. Um, it is very addictive. People are addicted to their um, cell phones. People are addicted to a lot of these electronics. And if they can get people to interact with electronics instead of each other, then um that would be better and even cheaper than uh, these drugs. If you think about it, you know, paying your cable bill, internet bill, whatever, every month, uh, you know, that that's that's an addiction. Okay. What other foods are structural fat found in? Um, You can just look with your eyes. You can see it. So um, you can find it in steak, that strip along the outside of the steak, that fat that you're tended to throw away because, ew, whatever. Um, That's structural fat. The fat in ham hocks, that's structural fat. Um, They have something called streak of lean, um, which basically is um, a block of fat with a streak of muscle through it, and uh, it's a pork cut. And this is fat you slice and you just throw in with your with your beans uh, to flavor your beans. And um, suet, it seems to me suet would be. I don't have any experience with cooking, preparing, or eating suet, so I, I can't really say. All right, we are at the end of our time. The show is over. So thank you very much for your attention. As always, think happens. And please visit our sponsor, VitalityCapsules.com, and get your free report, the Candida Cleaner Updated Version 2.0.